Welcome to the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday Message. The Bay Area has a rich diversity of churches and ministries that serve the community in Jesus' name. And here at KFAX, we love to shine a spotlight onto the great things God is doing through the kingdom work of pastors and ministry leaders. Each weekday, a pastor or leader is interviewed, and here on the Sunday Message, we feature a sermon or presentation from that leader to get you better acquainted with churches who will welcome you to worship and ministry opportunities that invite your involvement. Now, here's the host of the Sunday Message, David Naderhood. And good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday Message of the Ministry of the Week. This is Dave Naderhood, and this past week it was my privilege to have in studio Pastor Dave Che. He's the senior pastor over at Fremont Community Church, and uh, he's joined me again in studio today as we're going to have a message from uh, Pastor Dave and uh, talk a little bit just for a minute here about Fremont Community Church. So, Pastor Dave, welcome. Glad glad you could be with us this week on Ministry of the Week. Thanks. Glad to be here again. You know, we spent some time talking about your own past, your conversion uh, as, as you had been a, a history teacher, is that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And coaching wrestling, and God brought you from the East Coast out here to the California, to the to the best coast. That's right. And, that's right. <laughs> uh, and that was um, back in the late 80s? When was that? Um, let's see. I made the transition to the West Coast, uh, 96, 1996. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's when mm-hmm. I came West also. And mm. it was, um, uh, first to be an associate pastor, I think you said in yeah. Southern California. Four years at New Song. Uh-huh. All right. And then planted a church up here in, uh, the South Bay, right? Sunnyvale. Uh-huh. Awesome. Uh-huh. And then now for the past year, you've been senior pastor at Fremont Community Church. Mm. Um, and, a little bit this week, one of the things you shared was that contrast between church planting and then yeah, taking yeah. over a well-established ministry. I love how you laid out that that there was, a, you know, there's some really stark differences. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then that common bridge between them. And just wanted to give you a moment to share a little bit again how uh, uh, how that's going at Fremont Community Church and, uh, and what you're looking forward to yeah, there yeah. before we get into today's, today's message. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I would say the biggest difference and the benefit I see with uh, FCC is that when you have a seasoned group, you know, there's a lot of spiritual maturity. Um, you know, they're 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 not going to leave because you gave one bad message. They're not going <laughs> to, you know, get all emotional because, um, you know, a couple of things went wrong. I mean, this is a seasoned veteran group and, and there's a lot of wisdom there and I, and I think the value of mentoring younger folks i mean I, I just see the power of that um and so fcc has that and um you know it, it's a group that's willing to stick around to create environments for spiritual growth and that's mm-hmm. you don't always get that with a younger group you know 20 something 30 something there's a lot of transiency you know every two or three years they're changing jobs um so i love the 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 stability of that but i also love uh the fact that this group is willing to mentor those who are younger, you know, Amen. serve those who are younger. And, and you need that, you know, uh, this is the first time in a long time that, that I'm not the oldest in the church. Yeah. You know, I'm 53 <laughs> and I'm used to ministering down to folks who are in their twenties, thirties and forties. I mean, I actually have people my own age. Like I could even have friends in my church now. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so I think having that, I don't know, stability with each other and my wife not being the oldest female. Um, there's something about that that liberates you now to really minister Amen. with a lot of power. And, and so that's kind of what's happened. Um, so to describe our service, um, it, it has a little bit of a traditional feel, but I feel like 
our upfront presence because of the authenticity makes it inviting to, I think, anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there are definitely gray hairs in the audience. You notice that. It's not, you know, it's undeniable. But I, I think I try to tell people, hey, visit a church at least six times. Because yeah. the first couple of times you get one impression, but really after six, you can tell if this is a family. You can tell if this is a healthy church, right? That yeah. would be my recommendation. Uh, we're in the process of creating what's called a third culture service, mm-hmm. which is where we bring together with people different cultures between the ages of 18 and 40, right? Because we do live in a different culture, our parents' generation, and the culture that we live in is very different. Absolutely. And so we're trying to bring together all these different cultures and saying, what if we had a service devoted just to this group? And so that's going to happen Valentine's weekend, 2016. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dave, uh, I know worship is right now 10 a.m. Sunday morning, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Um, and folks can find out a lot more online at gofcc.org. You can mm-hmm. hear some sample messages there as well. And as I always share with folks, uh, Pastor Dave, it is, uh, we know there's a large chunk of our audience actually that's not connected to a church mm-hmm. at any given time. They may be new to town. You uh, may be listening today and maybe you got disconnected from church a long time ago. And if you live anywhere in the East Bay area, let me assure you that it would be well worth your time to drive on down, uh, right off Mission Boulevard, uh, come down and check out uh, Fremont Community Church next week Sunday at 10 a.m. Get a chance to meet Pastor Dave, and you get to hear one of his messages right now. So, uh, Dave, could you just lead us in a brief prayer going into today's sermon? Sure, I'd love to, love to. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great opportunity to, to share and dialogue like this Um so for all the folks that are listening out there, I just want to pray for them, pray for just uh, love. I pray for uh, engagement. I pray for community. I pray, God, that uh, people's faith would come alive, Lord, to, to live as if Christ um, is the most central thing in their lives. And so I just pray for all who are listening, that they would be blessed by this message, that you would encourage them in the core of their being, and that you would encourage them to live out their faith every day uh, in their lives. In Jesus' name. What's brown and furry and has a bushy tail and stores nuts in the winter? And the kid propped up his up. What kind of question is that? It's a science school. He goes, well, I think it's a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus Christ anyway. (laughs) I think it's a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus Christ anyway. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes, like... We all have the right answer. We get the right answer, and we think, man, man, I got through that class. Man, I got through that church. I got through that Bible stuff. I got the answer. I wonder if the Lord would just challenge us this morning and, and dig a little deeper and, and not be so glib in getting the right answer. And maybe the heart, the mind, and you know, when we're fully engaged in who God is, and maybe we wait on the answer and we just listen. And that maybe the, the, the godly thing to do is not spew out the answer right away. Maybe the godly thing to do is actually to listen and ponder. It's like, okay, what is that person really thinking? And maybe that's what God wants from us, to be Christ-like in that way and not just simply utter the right answer. This morning, we're going to look at a passage that you're familiar with because you've got the right answer. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I've titled this message, Go and Be a World Changer. Not because we expect everybody in this room to go out to Kenya or to Europe. And Well, if you do, praise God, go for it. We should be doing that. 
But I want to challenge you with this title and say, be a world changer of your world. Of your 8 to 15 people that God has entrusted in your life. Your spouse. Your kids. The next door neighbor whose name you, don't, you might not even know. The girls that you coach in softball. Your world. Be a world changer. Be your world changer is the title of this message. So when we hear this passage about Matthew 28, I want you to be thinking of, of names and faces of people in your world. Because they have names and they have faces. And, and you've been in their lives this entire time. This is your world. We want to challenge you today to be a your world changer. Matthew 28 18 uh, reads, 18, 19 reads this way. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority, that's right, I've got all the power, I've got all the resources, I've got all the capacity that you could even imagine in heaven and on earth. I've been given that by the Father. I've got all that. And I could do a lot of things with that power. I've got, I can do a lot of things with that resources. I could, I could go ahead and squander it. I could go ahead and try to, you know, do my own things. And no, no, no. I'm going to do, I'm going to take that thing that God gave me, the power and the resource and all the capacity I have, and I'm going to put it into one thing. I'm going to put it into people development. I'm going to put it into making disciples. People who want to be like Jesus. I'm going to put it into that. That's what this passage is saying. He says, he says you know, Jesus came to them and said, All authority, every, every, every imaginable power that you could think of about this whole entire universe, I've been given that. That's what heaven and earth mean. That's the range. There's, there's not a place where Jesus doesn't reign, is what this passage is saying. And he's saying, because I have this, I want you to go ahead and make disciples because that's what I want you to be about. Now, I'm thinking we have people in this group with significant influence, significant power, significant resources. You have a lot of power. And I want to just challenge you a little bit. Have you put most of that into trying to develop people? Or have you put most of it to develop your portfolio? Have you put most of that capacity, most of those resources, most of that that firepower that you have, that you've been given, have you put that into helping somebody become like Jesus? Because that's really what the passage is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the last thing I'm going to say to you, and I'm gone. I'm going to go away. That's what Jesus is saying. And because we've seen this passage for long, so long, we know the answer. We might gloss over us and say, hey, on, just, okay, what's the next thing? Let's go to the next thing. I don't know. I, I think this is a pretty standalone passage. But maybe this will help instead of moving so fast. If we look at the word authority, built into the word authority is the, is the word author. So all authority in heaven, it's almost like I'm the author of this thing. Built into the word authority is the word author, which means that that Jesus is now the author of everything. He wrote it, he created it, he was the head of it. He's the alpha, he's just the author. Should that have some meaning? Absolutely. Because it says here, that's the first thing that needs to be realized before we realize that we've got to make disciples. We're like, yes, we have all these techniques to make disciples, we should witness and kind of relate to the great. But it says here, all authority... 
I'm the author. Maybe we camp there a little bit as inspiration, as motivation, and then we launch and say, okay, you know what? This is what Jesus does. He takes that authority and he makes disciples. The author of that authority. Um, back in 1996, I, I, I transitioned from being a, a history teacher, a wrestling coach for 11 years in, in Maryland, right out of college. And the Lord called us into ministry, full-time ministry. In, in 1996, uh, I started full-time seminary work at Talbot Seminary down in, in Orange County. Got my MDiv there. But I was at a church called New Song from 1996 to 2000. Um, I was an associate pastor there. I just learned how to kind of skills of pastoring and, and uh, you know, going to seminary and trying to, you know, trying to learn all that. I remember like one, one year in or two, year in, two years in, I had one of the leaders in the church who had come to faith a couple of years earlier, but he was just growing a lot and, he, you know, he wanted to be in leadership. And he had a real heart for non-believers, especially people that had just come to faith. And he was really concerned about how they were growing because he was one of them, right? So he put a manual together. He put this really good manual together about how to grow spiritually. I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty, that's great ownership for a young leader. And so he calls me up or texts me or he emails me. He says, hey, Dave, I put this manual together. And I did the best I could to walk someone from like level one Christianity to all the way up to a full-blown serving in their community. I was wondering if you could take a look at it. I go, sure, I'd love to. So I go over there on a, on a Saturday. It was like 2 o'clock or something like that. And, and, um, and I'm looking at the manual. And I, well, first of all, this guy's an engineer, really bright guy. Okay, just to let you know. I'm looking at this thing. I'm going, oh, it just felt complicated. It really, it's like, if I'm a new believer, it's like, it felt heavy. But I wasn't going to tell him that. I don't want to crush his spirit. I go, um, it's okay. It's pretty good. You know, it really looks like you put a lot of time into it. Really good job. Time goes by and I realize, oh man, I, I, I have this appointment to get my brakes fixed. I, I better go. Right, so I told my friends, I said, hey, good job on this. Way to go. You know, way to put the effort in. But I got to go and, you know, I got to take care of my brakes. He goes, take care of your brakes? Where are you going to go to take care of your brakes? Well, that mean Midas or something like that. So my, my, you know, mechanic. Just tell you what, Dave, you know, I, I kind of do that on the side. Why don't you let me take care of your brakes? I said, what? Because, yeah, 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 let me take care of the brakes. So he takes me out to his garage, and sure enough, he's got those like, gigantic like, levers, you know. I like, wow, this is, this is what you do as a hobby? He goes, yeah, this is what I do. I go, okay. So he gets my car on there, jacks it up, and I don't know, less than an hour, my brakes are fixed. I go, wow, you, can I pay you for this? No, no, no. I, what, what are you talking about? I'm not going to charge you. This is, what, this is one of my language of loves. I'm not a good communicator. I don't even write that well, but I just... I, I just love, I show my love by service. So I just, please receive it. I go, wow, I was really touched. So I go home that night and, you know, like most young adults, after dinner, you decompress a little bit. I go, let me put that, let me whip out that manual. I whip out the manual, I'm coming through it. Wow, this, this is really good. This is really well written. So thought out. Wait a minute! Five hours early. I just told this guy it was it was it was, it was heavy, and it's just like good job. But you know, this is I don't know if it's going to work. What was the difference between the first reading and the second reading? I think the second reading, I had experienced the author's heart. I knew the author. The only difference, 
the first reading and the second, the only difference was that I got to experience the love of the author. And I said, wow, this is really good. <laughs> the Bible is God's manual. When you read it, okay, it's kind of complicated, it's heavy. Okay, thanks, but no thanks. But when you get to know the author of that manual, you read that Bible differently, don't you? When you know the author of the universe, the creator, the guy who's got, the one who's got all the power and all the, re- and you experience that love, whether it's through salvation or generosity or an incredible divine appointment, you never imagine it happens, and you're like, holy cow. You read his manual a little differently, don't you? So I want to encourage you today, before we get to the part about making disciples, to get to know this author. And maybe that means when we, when we say that, it means Psalm 1. Right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields his fruit in season, which does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Man, that's a man or woman of God dwelling at the feet of Christ and day and night. Man, I'm really getting to know God better. And the image there is a, is a tree that, that's flourishing because the, the roots are deeply entrenched in the Word of God. It's like, wow, bearing fruit in season. It's a beautiful picture, don't you think? I'd say that qualifies a picture of someone who knows the author of the universe. But then in John 4.34, we're also told that when, when Jesus, you know, his disciples are, are wondering if he's eaten enough. And Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. And Jesus, by that, is saying, look, this is how I get filled spiritually. I get, to, I, get, I get to hear from God. I know the will of God, and I do it. When I do it, man, I feel well-nourished spiritually. So whether you're the type of person that sits at the feet of, of God and, and, and drinking of the Word, and that, that you're going to get to know the author. Or even you hear the voice and you go, go talk to that homeless person. Reconcile with your sibling. Go reconcile with your brother. Go reconcile with your family. Man, I, that's the will of God. And Jesus said, when I do that, when I, when I hear God and, and I take Him in, it, it's, like, it's like food to my soul. So that's how God, Jesus got to know God even better. I believe both are, are necessary to get to know the author. I think that's where we've got to begin. Whether sitting at the feet of Christ and, and doing a study of His Word and just, 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 just in that, getting marinated with His presence. Or actually going out and doing it and listening to God in these obscure situations. Like God is saying, no, you need to just be quiet. Let this person talk so you can listen. That's the will of God right now. Or talk to your neighbor. Just build bridges. Don't worry about saying my name right now. Just build bridges. Earn trust. Create, establish relational equity. Build that up. And one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to orchestrate that person's life in such a way they're going to want to talk to you about God. That's the will of God. And Jesus is saying, when I listen to the will of God and I do it, I'm nourished. I grow spiritually. Both are examples of getting to know the author. We're here, and even as you hear that, and you hear it terms making disciples, like, man, it's okay. It, I'm, I'm hearing it, Dave. It's good. When we get to that term about making disciples, it's like, oh, man. Disciples and evangelism. It's like going to the dentist when you start, when you start talking like that. David's like, man, that's like it's for the professionals, right? It's it's for all those all those people. But when you get to know the author, it oozes out of you. You want to do it naturally. 
maybe you're here today and and when you hear this uh, you are are maybe stricken with what what some people call the bystander effect the bystander effect is, is actually a social phenomenon that's true the bystander effect or bystander apathy is a social psychological phenomena that refers to cases in which individuals do not offer any means of help to a victim when other people are present the probability of help is inversely related to the number of bystanders in other words the greater the number of bystanders the less likely it is that any one of them will help several variables help to explain why the bystander effect occurs these variables include ambiguity and cohesiveness and diffusion of responsibility the bystander effect was first demonstrated in the laboratory of John Darley and Bib Latane in 1968 after they became interested in the topic following the murder of Kitty Genovese in 1964. These researchers launched a series of experiments that resulted in one of the strongest and most replicable effects in social psychology. In a typical experiment, the participant is either alone or among a group of other participants or confederates. An emergency situation is staged, and researchers measure how long it takes the participants to intervene. If they intervene, if they intervene at all. These experiments um, have found that the presence of others inhibits helping, often by a large margin. For example, Bib Latane and Judith Rodin staged an experiment around a woman in distress. 70% of the people alone called out or went to help the woman after they believed she had fallen and was hurt, which is pretty high. But when there were other people in the room and the woman called out for help, only 40% offered help. In other words, the more people in this room hear about go and make disciples, the less likely you're going to do it. Because you start to think, oh, he's not talking to me. Oh, he's talking to the room. He's talking to Joe and Jane. That's the bystander effect. The more people hear a message like that, less likely they're going to do it. This happens in your household. This happens in my household. Early in our marriage, my wife and I had a, a strong agreement. She makes the food, and I eat the food. It was a good agreement. It worked for many, many years. And then we had kids. You know, she made the food, and we ate the food. But after a while, it's just, you know, it's not fair. Come on, all right. So it's okay if she cook. I cook, I cook every now and then too. We should help with the dishes. We should help with the trash. So I got smart and I started helping with the dishes. I started helping with the trash. When, when our kids were a little bit older, I said, you know, let's get some more help. I said, you know, we're, there, there's five of us now. So after eating, I'd announce it to our family. Hey, we are going to do the dishes. Let's go do the dishes. And then all of, a, all of a sudden, my kids would get very scholarly. Oh, but dad, you know, we have a test in three weeks. I should go study for that test, don't you think? <laughs> oh, dad, you know, you, you know how you always preach about how we should really study the Bible. I think this would be a good time for me to study the Bible. <laughs> very interesting how our kids get very biblical and scholarly at all the wrong times. Very interesting. What was that? Bystander effect. And the more of my kids heard about doing the dishes, the less likely they were going to do it. Now, granted, if I say, Elizabeth, can you please help me? It's a whole totally different response. Or, Daniel, come on, you're 20. <laughs> we can do this. <laughs> oh, you're right, Dad, let's do it. But very different response. 
But the bystander effects that the more people hear a common call for discipleship or evangelism, less likely that you're going to do anything about that. My guess is that that's a little bit of that is going on right now. Rather than thinking, man, how do I disciple people? You may be thinking, man, that's a good message. That's a good, I, hope, I hope that the guy next week speaks a good message too. I'll be there next week. It's almost like you want to hear something good and not necessarily do anything about it. <laughs> that's what the bystander effect is. What if instead we went with the first responder effect? The first responder is an employee of an emergency service who is likely to be among the first to arrive at and assist at the scene of an emergency. Such as an accident, natural disaster, and terrorist attack. First responders typically include police, firefighters, and emergency medical responders, such as paramedics and emergency medical technicians. That, that's what first responders do. They respond to emergencies. That's what we, as a community, as first responders, should do, because you see there's a spiritual emergency. The last time I checked, 93% of the people in this area don't go to church. The last time I checked, a lot of people still are engaged in pornography. The last time I checked, there's still a ton of violence in our society. The last time I checked, divorce is still at a 50% rate, even amongst Christians. Would you say we have a, a spiritual emergency on our hands? Would you say it's time for us to be first responders to that? And I think that's what Jesus is doing. I think He's saying all this power, all this capacity, all these resources I have, I got it. But there is such a spiritual emergency in the land. I'm sending you out. And I want you to make disciples. Help people to be like me. That, that's what he's saying. That's all he's saying. The beautiful thing about scripture is that she shows us how to do that. He says this. He says the way you're going to make disciples is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I don't know if, if the scriptures can be any simpler. Go and make disciples. Here's how you can do it. You can do it by helping people go public with their faith. That, that's what baptism is. The internal transformation, the private transformation that has happened, make that public. Make it known. That's one of the ways that you could help make disciples. Encourage people to go public with their faith. Go public with them knowing me. Go public with their good deeds and, and life. Now, I, I've only been in the bear since summer of 2001, so I'm going on 14 years. But you know in this area, when things go public, you hear about it. You hear about companies going public and saying, wow, they want IPO, man, they're going to make this much money and that much money. They, they just went public. That's one of, the, one of the things you hear about when you think about things, something going public. But then you also hear about somebody's kind of sexual orientation. Oh, they've come out of the closet. Oh, they've become public. Oh, did you hear that? Did you hear? It's like, wow, they went public. But when's the last time, on a regular basis, you heard about a Christian who went public? Whether it's a baptism or someone who stood up against a certain conviction they had and said, No, this is not going to happen at my wife. No, this is not the way. This is, these are not my core values. We are not going to head down this path. We are followers of Christ. The last time we went public. 
And Jesus is saying that's one of the ways that you can make disciples. Help them to go public with the fact that they are followers of Christ. And, and, this, and the second thing, I, I love it. I, I love the generality of this. I, I want, some, some, I want this, this verse to have some wiggle room. There's no wiggle room in there. Teach him to obey everything that Jesus commanded. I wish it said, except this one, except that one. I said, no, no, everything. Like if we sat in this room and I had you define the word disciple, what would you say? Someone attends church? Someone who is, you know, is calm and has a lot of peace, maybe? Someone who just sees and maybe... It says here, a disciple is someone who obeys everything Jesus commanded. That's what a disciple is. So he just said, I'm, go and make disciples. Here's two ways to do it. Go public with, help them go public with their faith, and teach them to do everything that I commanded. It's like, wow, it's pretty clear. Pretty clear. Um, about a year ago, or maybe a couple years ago, um, I was driving home. I, actually, my wife was driving. I was in the driver's. I was pastor's seat, and, and I, it was a time when I was really just seeking the Lord for like you know direction and clarity, and maybe even some semantics of, of describing what He was already doing in my heart. Um, a couple years prior to this, I, I felt like the Lord gave me a personal vision, a, a life mantra, which is to hear from God and do do what He says. I mean, that's really the vision of Paraclete as well, because it's not just about what. Um, what the preacher is saying on Sunday is like, what are you hearing? What are you hearing about your life that God wants you to do something about? It's not just about what you're hearing. It may be like, wow, you know what? I, I need to go. I need to talk to Joe. Even though I didn't talk about Joe, that's what you heard. It's like, man, it, this reminds me that I've been walking with this guy or this girl, and, and I need to spend more time with it. You know, I, got, I got to talk to Joe or Sal. It's like, well, that's what you're hearing. Go for it. So that's been my life mantra. But then I, I, I just felt like the Lord was trying to affirm me. So I, I, I'm driving along. I'm about to make a left turn to, to where my street is. And I see this guy with a jacket that says, follow me. <laughs> I go, whoa, who wears a jacket that says, follow me? Nobody. This is not a coincidence. This is a word from God. Because if you looked at the New Testament, there's several times where Jesus says, follow me. Matthew 4.19, right? Follow me. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. He says that several times, by the way. So I go, wow, that's pretty good affirmation of the way he wants me to live my life as a disciple of Christ. So it was, you know, you know, hear from God and do what he says, but then this made it very clear to me. It's okay, I got it. But, you know, being kind of a little smart aleck kind of guy, and I, I want to know stuff. I said, what does this guy really do? How, how is it possible he wears a jacket that says, follow me? Come on, it's, it's silly. I know God gave me a message. Yes, I'm going to take that. Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus. So I started looking up on Google, like, where does this come from? Like, who wears a jacket like that? What's that? You didn't follow him? I, well, <laughs> that's good. I should have, right? I said, no, he doesn't want... He wants me to follow Jesus, not this guy. So I look him up. I look up the jacket. I said, wow, that's pretty cool. You know when you, when you land the plane and the, the, the plane is taxing, it's got to get to the terminal? There are guys in front of you with jackets that say, follow me. I said, that's cool. That's really good. That makes a lot of sense. I just need to find out. I know it's from God and all, but come on. Lord, I mean, this has to exist somewhere on this planet. Like, he doesn't just pop out of blue and say, oh, yeah, this is a message for you. It's like, so that's, that's where it comes from. I, maybe you don't care, but I care. <laughs> I, I care. Um, all right, so, so let's say all this stuff is going on, and you actually... You know, take someone in. You actually, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to walk with people. I'm going to be in their lives. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever heard of Hugh Alter, but he's the author of uh, Tangible Kingdom. And I love what he said as his kind of, you know, approach to this. He goes, you know, we're, we're sitting with a bunch of leaders, and he was trying to share his philosophy. He goes, 
when, when the Lord brings me a person in my life, I, I strap myself to that person for five years, minimum. That, that just gave me a, a, a picture of discipleship. It wasn't a class. It wasn't a few tips about how to make your life better. It wasn't even being a good example. It was like, wow, you're in that guy's life. It's like five years. It's kind of like bad acne. You got it for five years. Like, well, that's a long time. Whoa, that's really five years? Yep, five years. That's what I did. It's like, wow. I, I, I got to tell you, I, 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 was, I, I, I was stricken by that. I said, that's, that's challenging. It says here that when we make disciples of all nations, God actually puts an assurance attached to it. He says, God assures us when we make disciples. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Isn't that cool? So he makes this huge declaration, you know, I've got authority in heaven and earth, and go and make disciples of all nations, you know, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, makes it clear this is what you need to do. He says, and you do this, you're not going to be alone. I'm not going to leave you alone. It's not a, a lonely. I'm going to assure you that I am there with you. And that's a pretty strong statement. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's like, man, does that mean that all the other times that God's not with me? Of course not. There are times in Scripture when God wants to make an emphatic point about something, about His character, about the way He provides, about the way He protects. He says, I am with you. You know it, and I know it. In the Old Testament, when, when Abraham was really struggling with not having any kids, and he was kind of a, a laughingstock in his village, and he had no kids, and, and Sarah was getting frustrated, saying, you know, go get me a kid, just, just go sleep with Hagar. And she got really upset. And Abraham was like, oh God, what do I do? I, I just, I, get, I can't, can't do this you know, on my own. And it wasn't just, in those circumstances, he, he was frustrated, and he didn't know which way to go, and, and what would God say? I'm with you. And then when Jacob got on the scene and, and he was struggling with, with like, you know, ministry and, and cheating on, on Esau and he was scared. And God would say, just like I was with Abraham, just like I was with Isaac, I'm with you. And when Joshua had to fill the huge shoes of Moses, Moses was like the man, but he was a man, he died. <laughs> and Joshua's, God's like, you're the, you're the, you're the guy. He's like, no, 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 that's not me. I, those shoes are way too big. What did God say? I'm with you, as I was with Moses. In fact, that idea, like, I am with you, was so powerful and so poignant in, in God's economy that he named his own kid after that concept. He named his kid Emmanuel. God with us. So when God says, I am surely with you to the end of the day, he's, he's not just saying, oh, I'm kind of thinking of being with you. No, 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 you don't understand. This is a huge thing to let you know discipleship is important to me. People development is important to me. Helping others take one step closer to Christ is important to me. Surely I am with you to the end of the age. About three years ago, the Lord brought someone into my life that I, I, I felt like he was, God was saying, I need, I need you to minister to this guy non-believer, San State, State professor. His daughter uh, uh, was a softball player like my daughter. This is when they were eight, and she was nine and my daughter was eight. And uh, I, saw, I saw his daughter pitch on this team, and she was really, really good, right? To my shame, I should have thought, oh, I should you know, walk with this guy and, and help him to know Jesus. No, I was thinking, man, I want my daughter to pitch as good as his daughter. I'm being honest. I'm at church. I'm confessing. That's what I was thinking. So I asked my friend Dave, how did you get your daughter to pitch so well? It's like, we have a pitching coach. Well, what's her name? Victoria Reeves. 
Give me her phone number. It takes me three months to get this number, but I get it. My daughter starts to go to this pitching coach, and sure enough, in you know, a couple of years, she's pitching not quite as good as his daughter, but pretty good. Three years ago. Intermittently between three years and now, you know, we'll see each other at, at, at ballparks and things like that. And one day he sees me, you know, maybe about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. He goes, hey, hey, how's it going? Haven't seen you in a while, you know. Let's get together. I go, of, absolutely, would love to. What do you want to do? He says to me, um, hey, we love to eat Korean food. He's Caucasian, but his wife's Chinese-American. He said, man, we love to eat Korean food, especially those Korean barbecues. Would you mind going with us? I go, I'd love to. No, but when you go, could you help us order off the menu? Right? And I go, what do you mean by off the menu? Because, well, you know, there's stuff on the menu. But you know as well as I do, all the good stuff is off the menu. <laughs> and, and since you're Korean, you can speak to the waitresses, right? And ask them in Korean about stuff off the menu. I don't know such a Korean. A little bit. I understand better. I can order food, though. You know how it is. Like, you, you know, you can always get that language. But I didn't have the heart to tell him. I said, oh, man, I don't know hardly any Korean. I'm going to embarrass myself. But he didn't know any Korean, so I felt like I can do this. <laughs> we go to this restaurant. You know, it's one of the ones that I really like in Santa Clara. And sure enough, the waitresses are coming here and there. And I go, oh, yeah, can we get this? this? So I order off the menu. You know? And all the food comes and... And he and his wife and kids are there, and he brought another family who, who, who's are, who are Buddhists. And we had a great time because he had no idea, you know. Fortunately, the, the waitress didn't tip me off. She said, oh, okay, I'll go get that. I said, oh, man, thank you, God. <laughs> well, about three-quarters of the dinner in, my friend Dave says, I've been wondering about this verse in the Bible. Dude, I've clocked out. Like, why are we talking about the Bible? I, I just want to eat. He says, I've been wondering about this verse in the Bible. Okay? So I look at the verse, and it's a complicated verse. I say, well, yeah, I probably need to study that. But that's a great question. But right now, I think it means this, but I'm not 100% sure. But maybe, you know, after I study it, I'll get back to you. Finish dinner. We'll go out in the parking lot. Literally, I felt like the Holy Spirit saying to me, have breakfast with this guy. So I stop in the parking lot. I say, Dave, you seem to have a lot of Bible questions. Would you like to have breakfast with me? He goes, man, I'd love to. I'd love to. And I go, well, yeah, let's send verses to each other. Maybe we'll pick a Bible passage. And he goes, what version of the Bible should I bring? And I go, what version do you have? He goes, well, I got the King James. I have the NIV. And I have the one with all the sticks. And I have all the new translations. I have the new... I'm just like, this guy had it all. I go, just, just do the NIV. So eight months ago, we start meeting once a month for breakfast. <laughs> I was like, dang, this is, this is, this is cool. I like this. About three months ago, we're, we're sitting across from each other at um, Bill Affair. It's a it's a rest, it's a, a breakfast place in San Jose on Saratoga Avenue. And he says to me, "You know, Dave, I I gotta tell you, when I was this age, I did this. Never been able to shake it. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. You know, as a pastor, you hear a lot of stuff, right? I'm going, bro, that's not that bad, man. I've heard so much worse in my head. I didn't tell him that." <laughs> That's it? That's, that's your ball and chain? Man, you can do better. I said, <laughs> really? That's, that's what you struggle with? I, I said, hmm, that's good. Because I'm listening, I'm listening. And he goes, yeah, I've just never been able to shake it. Again, the Holy Spirit speaking to me. He said, you need to share Christ with this guy. So I said, Dave, you know that Jesus died for sins just like that. 
and many more, far worse, present and future. And he responds, he's like, you know, I've heard that message over and over, but it feels different now. And again, the Holy Spirit's like, share Christ, this guy. I said, Dave, would you like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? He said, I'd like to do that. So right then and there, we bowed our heads, and we prayed that he would know Jesus. We finished our breakfast. He went to his car. I went to my car, and he texts me. And he said, Dave, I want you to know that I've been shackled by this sin for so many years. Thank you for sharing Jesus with me. I feel free. I feel free. And I'm like, it's like, God, you know, that wasn't that hard. It really wasn't. I mean, it was in the environment of something I enjoy, which is softball. I want my kid to get better, so it was in that environment. What's not to like about Korean barbecue? You know, I, I, went, to, I went to seminary to know the Bible. I think I know the Bible decently. I have an MDiv. It's like, man, God, that wasn't that hard. Maybe the hardest thing was trusting that God would go before me and that I'd leave the converting to Him and that my job was to love this guy. Just have breakfast with him once a month and just pray to the Lord, I, I can't control conversion. I don't have the power to transform this guy. You do. So I'll tell you what. I'll do what I do and you do what you do. That was the agreement. I said, God, I'll do what I do. You do what you do. You're the only one that can transform this guy. I know I could order a good breakfast. I know I could pick a decent restaurant. I know I can hold a decent conversation with my friends. But I, don't, I can't convert this guy. That's your job. You're going to want to do that, right? And by the way, I hope you get glory for that because I can't do it. <laughs> So that's what we did. After he received the Lord, we couldn't just meet once a month. He's like, he's got to grow. So we start meeting twice a month. To this day, we meet every other Friday. To this day, we still talk about Bible passages. I'm like, as I was doing this, I can't tell you how true that verse became. It's like, as he accepted Christ, you could just feel the Spirit's presence. It's like, see, I told you. I told you I'd be with you when you did this. Why don't trust me in this? And you do this. When you make disciples of all names, I'm going to be there. Just keep doing more and more of it. So this is also one of the things that I do. I've got a guy I've been walking with for six years. Got another guy I've been walking with for three years. Every week. Got another guy I pray with every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Down Wealth Manager downtown. We've been meeting every, every Thursday for, for two and a half years now. And this is what I feel and sense and believe. It's like, wow, I, I kind of, I know what, what you mean now. Surely I am with you to the end of the age. And God, all you have to say is, I'm with you. In fact, when I'm struggling and I don't know the next step and it just seems dark, I just need to know, God, I just, are you with me? Because I know when you're with me, I feel like I can do anything. I just need, I don't care if the destination is not clear, that you haven't mapped out the next 15. I just want to know, are, are you with me? And when I used to, used to read scripture like that, like when that came up, oh, it's unclear. You know, come on, let's get some clarity. I said, you know what, you don't have to be clear anymore. I, I think I get it when you say, I will be with you. I'm going to evoke that as a prayer for me. I just need to know if you're going to be with me. I'm going to be talking to this person. I'm going to have a really hard conversation, Lord. Crucial conversation. It's going to be tense. I just need to know, are you with me? I'm going to have to set my kids straight because they did X, Y, and Z, and it's going to be a hard conversation. It's going to be a lot of defenses, a lot of blame. Are you with me? 
I'm going to have one of those conversations with my wife late at night, the, the kind that goes, man, you know, we're not connected. Are you with me? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I don't know what that withness is going to look like. I just know it's really good. You see, that's what discipleship should feel like when you start doing some of that. Maybe you're saying as you're hearing all this, it's like, okay, I get it, I get it, I, I want to do some of that too, but I sure could use a little bit of head start. I could use a little tips here, because I, I, I can't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that thing what you did with Dave, that's, that's pretty huge. And you're a pastor, right? you got that special thing going on. I don't know, you can't have breakfast with somebody? You can't go to, you don't have to go to current barbecue, go to your own equivalent. Right? You can't look up Bible verses, because all the verses he was sending, I had to look up, you know, do commentary work on it. They're all on, online. But I think it's a legit question. How do we get a head start? Like, like, okay, like, you're there, great. That's, that's what you do. You're probably one of those guys that you're on a plane and all these guys start talking to you and they accept Christ on the plane. You're, that's what I, we hear all the time. These pastor stories about how they hate to do that on the plane. And then, and then somebody talks to them and they receive Christ on the, on the plane. Well, that never happens to us. Well, it's great for you. I, I hear that a lot too. I said, you know what? That's my, maybe those are my stories. Well, what do I do? How do I do it? <laughs> how do I take that first step? And this is the part that I think what's really helpful is to think, okay, yes, the Bible is full of first steps, but all truth is God's truth, right? Meaning that if God has, peop- God has created these scientists and these athletes and all these folks who, who, who we can learn from, and their first step and how to teach, you know, getting a first step or getting going is, is valid, why not learn from that? As long as it doesn't violate Scripture. One of the things that we can do to get a head start is to kind of see things from perhaps a different perspective. Let me give you an example, and this is I learned from social scientists on this. They did an experiment where they they took this car wash company, right, and they offered all these you know rewards and said, hey, um, if if you um, if you come to us eight times, right, get your car washed eight times. We will give you the ninth one free. That was just incentive, right? Go eight times, get the ninth one free. But they did an experiment to see, okay, how could this car wash get to eight fast enough so that the ninth one would be free, like motivate people. So they had another experiment, same, you know, same car wash company said, okay, if you get to ten, we'll give you the eleventh one free, right? So that was the option. You go to eight, you get the ninth one free, or you get to ten and you get the eleventh one free. But with the ten, they said, we're going to give you a head start. We'll stamp the first two, right? The, the first two are on us. So now, you just have to get to eight on both sides. Same eight. They did an experiment to see who would get to the eight first. Uh, the one with the eight with no head start, or the one with the ten with two head starts or two stamps, because they both have to get to eight. Oh, 100% of the time, this, this group got to eight first. Why? Because they felt like they were moving ahead. <laughs> they were like, oh, we got two stamps. I just got to get eight more. Here's like, get to eight. And she goes, I, I know it seems like that seems manipulative. It seems like, man, that's trickery, man. Do we want that at the pulpit? Do we want to be about that? Don't worry about that. <laughs> don't, don't worry about that. Just don't think about that. We still got to make disciples. And if I can help you to, to, to take initial steps, of that, you know what? I'll use anything to get you to make disciples. If that means get a head start, get a head start. What's the head start for Christians? And I'm going to go to the second one that might be equally important. The head start you have is that you have the Holy Spirit. You don't just have two stamps. You have like eight. You have nine. You have all the stamps. 
I'm wondering why you would not utilize the Holy Spirit who's already wired, already thinking, I'm about making disciples. I change lives. But if you're not meeting with anybody, I can't help you with that. <laughs> that's your staff. Like, I, I can't say it. Any, you, you have the Holy Spirit. It's not just two stamps. You got three, four, five, six. You have like seven stamps. When you go, God says, surely I'm with you. Today. Let's go. All you have to do is start meeting with people over a long period of time. And what's really cool is that people started to change. Like, wow, wow, what happened there? All I did was start meeting with people. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit's ministering to that person. So that's one way. Is to, is to, is to really know that you already have that head start with the Holy Spirit. Here's a second way that it may be more tangible when you think about it. Um, in the book Influencers, it's all about how do you... It's written by a Christian, by the way, Joseph Granny. How do you change what you can't change? How do you change where it seems impossible, right? right? I think that's a legitimate question. Like, man, we all want to lose a little bit of weight. We want to be smarter. We want a better job. You know, whatever. We all want to change. I'd like to be more loving. I'd like to be more humble. I'd like to be more forgiving. So who doesn't want any of that? And the book is really good about universal changes in any area of your life. Whether you're a race car driver, a teacher, a physician, a business guy. It's like if you want to see changes, it seems like there's some universal characteristics. In this particular experiment, this particular scene, they were trying to see how they can get people to be self-controlled. I don't know, maybe that's not an issue with it, but some people seem to struggle with self-control. They wanted to see how to develop that, how to develop self-control. They brought Timmy into the room, four-year-old, and they challenged Timmy. They sat on my table and said, this is a marshmallow. If you, if you, you can take this marshmallow, eat this now, or if you wait ten minutes, we'll give you two. And Timmy's four years old, right? He's there, they're videotaping all this. Oh, man. One now or two later. One now or two later. He's looking, he's looking. Picks it up, licks it, puts it back. One now, two later. Ah, oh, I can't do it. So he eats it. So they track Timmy and guys like Timmy the next 15 years, 20 years. You know, th- those who failed that test... They had lower SAT scores, 200 points lower. They struggled in school. They struggled in marriage and struggled in their jobs. Just because they failed the delayed gratification test. Like, dang it. I think I would have failed that test. What are, that's dest- Does that mean that all of us are going to lack self-control for the rest of our lives? Because it feels like destiny. So they start asking the question, well, was there anybody who failed that test but are doing well in life? They go, yeah, there were quite a few. They start studying what the difference was. Across the board, those who failed that delayed gratification test but did really well in life, you know, SAT scores were high and relationships were strong and, and jobs were solid and marriages were good. The one characteristic they saw was that each one of those children had at least one person in their lives who modeled self-control. In other words, modeling Walking with people does a lot more than you think. And I said, wow, I need to know that that's a good word. And I look at Jesus' life. How often he, he would say stuff like, okay, I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to wash your feet. And I, I know this is weird, and I, I know that you're not used to this, but even the lowliest service never, but I wash your feet. Now I want you to go Likewise. He would teach modeling all the time. He modeled love and compassion. When these prostitutes would be at his feet, and the disciples were like, what are, you, what are you doing? Get out of here. He goes, no, no, no. Because she has been forgiven much, she loves much. She's doing the right thing. He would model uh, interaction with people who were ill-reputed. He said, there's no walls with me. 
No, there's no socioeconomic walls. There's no ethnic walls. No, no, no. I will have a meal with every sinner because I love them. He modeled it. And the disciples like, did he just meet with a woman? Did he just meet with a sinner? Man, dang it. He modeled it. And guess what? You and I can do that too. Because these non-believers or people far from God, they may not want to go to church. But they will have coffee with you and they will have breakfast with you. Because they're watching you and say, man, I like this guy. I like the way he lives. I don't want to go to church. But I like what this person is about. And guess what? The one thing that you have that I will never have with all of your non-Christian friends, the one thing you have that I will never in my wildest dream have with your non-Christian friends, relational equity. You have built trust with these people for many, many years. And I think to the shame of our church, we have not taught you how to leverage that for kingdom glory. Our best strategy is to have you invite that person to our church. Please, really, that's our best strategy. You have something so much more, far more valuable than I'll ever have with your friends. You have relational equity, you have trust, and all we're saying, leverage that. And just wait for God to work. That's it. That's discipleship. I know, I know we're running out of time here. I'm just going to go real fast here. You know, start with some non-Christian friends that you love and respect, who trust you. Pray over their lives weekly. Listen to the Holy Spirit for what, what to say, what not to say. Just like with Dave. Meet with them once a month. Notice them. Listen. Pray. Get together with two or three other Christians and say, you know what? We all, we, each of us have three, Christians, three non-believers in our lives. What do you say we do this together? And maybe plot out a nine-month plan where you invite six or seven non-Christians over, you know, over six or seven months and praying over their lives. And maybe you'll have a small group of non-believers with three Christians in each. I, I realize this is a, you know, getting down the road, but this is, I just want to throw something at you and say, well, wow, that's a plan. Okay, okay. Let me think about that. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And surely, I am with you to the end of the age.